Hello everyone, my name is Matt and I am the host of the BG South Gaming Podcast. I invite you to join me as I rant, rave, discuss, and offer my opinions on all the latest and greatest news and topics surrounding the video game world. My podcast can be found on most major streaming services, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So if you're looking for a fresh opinion on the video game news that interests you, then tune in to the BG South Gaming Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to Mystery, a podcast about myths and history. I am one of your hosts, Bryant, with my permanent guest, Cammy. Hello, Cammy. Hey, Bryant. And the the not permanent guest, I like saying that now, uh, Peter. Hello, Peter. Hello, guys. How are you? Very good, thanks. So, Podic, or this this is a Podicus Magnus because Peter's here, um, obviously, which means uh, every couple weeks. Aside from the regular show that Cammy and I do, Mystery will release uh, an episode that are uh, a little more of a deep dive or they're just fun and silly like today's episode. Typically, we will grab a myth or a legend or a tale, give you the story behind it, and then give you some of the history. But today, we're going to revisit a fun formula that we did back in April on April Fool's Day, and that was Two Truths and a Lie. So, yeah, that's what today is, is a Two Truths and a Lie episode. Uh, that was really fun last time. Cammy bamboozled us hardcore, <laughs> uh, which is really fun. But, uh, yeah, we so the way this is going to work is each of us has three stories that we're going to sort of tell. Um, they they kind of vary with range. Like mine are kind of like military-themed a little bit, and you guys have a little bit of a theme, I believe, too. And then after one person tells their three stories – uh, the other two will guess which two are true and, well, most importantly, which one is the lie. So we're going to go with Peter first, I believe. So, Peter, will you please hit us up? I sure will. And, and before I begin, I wanted to kind of point out that this format's a great way to kind of give you give the audience little bite-sized pieces. So if you're listening and you say, like, hey, I really want to hear more about Shinto creatures, let us know. We could we could commit to doing a bigger episode on that at a later date. Absolutely. So, my theme today is ka- <laughs> Gojira. Is kaiju. Uh, so let me get my doc up here. All right. So um, I was really inspired by an article I read on kaijuhistorian.wordpress.com. So if you like what I'm talking about, uh, visit that site and see what they've got going on. It's very cool. So here we go. Kaiju films like Godzilla and Pacific Rim have become a major part of popular culture and our modern mythology. And of course, giant monsters and strange creatures play a major role in classical mythology, from Grendel and Beowulf to the Hydra from the Trials of Heracles. Today, we're going to trace the origins of Japanese kaiju films back to their roots in Shinto religion and folklore. Now, Shinto developed in Japan where it's still widely practiced, and its stories, creatures, and themes remain as popular in Japan as Greek mythology does here in the West. Uh, Shinto beliefs and worship are very much rooted in nature, and many of its major characters are anthropomorphic versions of unstoppable natural forces and powerful emotions. Uh, Japanese mythology is writhing with dragon tales, and it's very, very likely that these stories inspired giant kaiju creatures like Godzilla and King Ghidorah. Uh, While these ancient dragons were often depicted as destroyers, perhaps the most famous dragon was a great protector of Japan. 
Just as Godzilla sometimes ceased his rampaging to defend humanity from alien attacks, the dragon Ryujin was often depicted as a benevolent deity. The dragon god Ryujin lived beneath the ocean in a great cavernous palace whose vaults and arches grew from walls of red and white coral. Among his treasures were a set of dazzling jewels that he used to control the tides. With a swish of his tail, he could channel the ocean currents and draw his servants to him. And his great throne room swirled with turtles, jellyfish, and sharks who had come to attend to him and show him honor. Ryujin could also transform into human form, and he enjoyed spending time among the people of the land. Once, hearing of an imminent invasion from Kublai Khan's navy, Ryujin raised a great hurricane to blow the fleet off course and wreck its hulls against hidden shoals. Ryujin's offspring even married into human families. Japan's imperial dynasty even claims Ryujin as an ancestor. So that is story number one. Okay. Here comes, here comes story number two. <laughs> Uh, many kaiju creatures have crustacean or crab-like characteristics, the most famous being Godzilla's lobstery foe, Abira. These characters also likely originate from Shinto deities and Japanese folklore. The Kujiki, an ancient Japanese text, tells the story of the crab god Jakuna Kani. Jakuna Kani was a fearsome and angry god, and the ocean boiled around his lair deep beneath the waves. His great shell was larger than many of the islands of Japan, and his great claws had carved out their mountains and valleys. Sometimes his fury became so great that it burst out of his back, forming volcanoes and smoldering islands of sharp black rock. Many believe that tsunami, those destructive tidal waves, were the result of Jakunukani shaking with rage. You can still find shrines to Jakunakani in many of Japan's coastal communities. One of the nation's largest fish markets is named after the giant crab, and fleets of crabbing vessels still pay homage to Jakunakani before leaving port, asking for protection and a bountiful harvest. That's cool. It's gonna be tough to, to trick Bryant. I know he's he's actually. <laughs> I know he's a weeb. <laughs> <laughs> We'll you should let me guess first. <laughs> I, 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 de I definitely should. That's okay, good. here's story number three. Flying kaiju like Rodan and Mothra can also be traced back to Japanese mythology. The skies above ancient Japan were reportedly filled with winged demons, storm spirits, and flying dogs that gleamed like burning meteors. The 18th century book called the Tengu Magiko tells of a race of flying demons called Tengu. Tengu were giant kite-like creatures with a humanoid body, huge feathered wings, and sharp beak and talons. They often fought against dragons and would carry off the great serpents and drop them onto jagged mountain peaks. Perhaps the most famous Tengu was the female deity Amanazako. In his rage, the great god Susano vomited up Amanazaku. Her name means heaven opposing everything, and she certainly lived up to her name. She was unpredictable and dangerous. Her teeth could chew through the sharpest swords and stoutest armor, and she was quick to anger 
and delighted in playing tricks on humans. Many believe that Amazaku was the mother of all yokai, and her name appears on many Shinto shrines. Amanazaku, that means against all heaven? Is that what you said? Oppo- heaven opposing everything. Oh, I feel like that's like the the joke, the dad joke, like that's what I'll name my daughter when she's a teenager. I don't know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's all I can think of. <laughs> no, that's really cool. Um, so really we have, good job, Peter. So we have story one. Yeah. Uh, the dragon god Ryujin. Mm-hmm. Story two, the destroyer crab god Jakunakani, or story three, the flying uh, uh, monsters Tengu. Cami, you're up. Okay, so I'm, I'm writing I think, it down. Sure, I think that the first one is not true because a lot of that stuff sounded like a Mario water level. She knows me well. I do. I, do. <laughs> I like to hide. I like to hide uh, Nintendo references in my stories. Yes. There, there's precedent for that. <laughs> All right. So, so, so you guess you guess that Ryujin is fake. Yes, but I really hope that the third one is real because that's really cool. <laughs> okay. The third right. one's definitely real. Oh, good. I know I know Tengu pretty well. Um, in fact, there's a really cool reference to them in, in uh, the new game Ghosts of Tsushima. Um, they do a cool mission where you're fighting. Like it's not real, but it's it's a cool reference to them, and um, it's it's scary. There's no like crazy against the heaven girl though, or goddess. Um, I have to say it is number one Ryujin. Um, I I actually know there, there's truth in there though. I know the name Ryujin, mm-hmm. but I don't think there was a, a a god in that sense. And I and I am pretty. I don't remember the name of the crab. But there is also a crazy big crab, like deity thing. So I'm I'm more com- I 100% know Tengu's real. Pretty sure about the crabs, and I'm also pretty sure that Ryujin isn't. Might be might be some sort of a mystical being, but not in that sense. Okay. Well, um, I thought I was going to get you with Tengu actually because um, the Tengu creature has kind of evolved over over the yeah. centuries. So like you may you might be familiar with like the red-faced long-nosed uh, yeah. creatures. Those are also considered tengu. So I thought I might be able to trick you there, but oh. tengu tengu are real, but their forms have really kind of evolved over over the, oh, you know, cool. over the centuries. So you were you were correct that tengu are real. Right. And the other true story is Ryujin. Oh no. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh wow, both. Peter fooled us both. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, so... So the destroyer, get, the, the evil done. crab demon is, is my own creation. <laughs> it's two points. That's awesome. Woo! Wait, so the second one was the lie? Yes. Okay. Oh, man. That's crazy. I, I remember that there's some kind of a, a crab god, though. Um, and I, I remember, too, because there was the like old game for PS3, Kenji, or Genji, mm-hmm. Day of the Blades, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there was a joke because they were talking about it at E3, and the guy was like, and it's set in historical Japan. And then this dude jumps and stabs a giant crab, and everyone's like, that wasn't, <laughs> that didn't happen <laughs> in Japan back then. Um, no, excellent job, Peter. Really, good really job. Good. Yeah, um, really cool stuff there. We, we did a, uh, we've done a an episode that introduced a little bit of stuff. It was a like a Japanese creation myth um, episode mm-hmm. where we talk about the Gojiki and the other book. 
or the other text. And then also we talk about um, Susano and Amaterasu and Izanagi, Izanami. So it's really cool. Awesome. Yeah, I got to say, this is a, for, for those of you listening at home, uh, this is our first podcast that we've kind of videoed. And it was really fun to kind of watch you guys listen to that story. Uh-huh. I was yeah. watching Brian. Like, hmm, that's that might yeah. be true. So this right. is fun. That's cool. Um, okay, so my <laughs> term. So my theme, as I kind of did last time, is sort of based in um, military history and and military exploits. One's a little more like mythy, but it's pretty simple. So the first one is about the Confederados. Um, so. Uh, after the Civil War, despite the former Confederate president and generals Davis and Lee um, uh, recommending against emigration, many Southerners didn't want to live in the South after the loss. And an estimate, it's estimated that 10 to 20,000 Southerners emigrated to Brazil in 1865, where slavery was still legal for some time. Uh, many actually gained Brazilian citizenship and by the third generation had integrated heavily in the culture and language. Uh, there is a festival that still goes on today honoring the heritage of those that emigrated and the legacy that they brought. Hmm. Number one. All right. Number two. Um, I call this one. I, I gave them titles. I call this one the the, the birth of the great con. <clears throat> so. Uh, it is on record in the secret history of the Mongols, a primary source about the uh, the dynasty of the great Khans, that Genghis Khan's mother describes that after her son was born, he his knuckle or his fist was uh, tightly wound, and as she unwound the fingers, uh, he it was revealed that he was holding a very thick uh, knuckle-sized blood clot. And it is believed that this blood clot symbolizes both his ability as a leader and the coming bloodlust and terror that the great Khan would soon bring. Hmm. Cool. Nice and simple. All right. Last one. <laughs> I call this one Saxons and bees versus Vikings. <laughs> um, in England in 886, in the area known as Biamfliot, or today known as Benfleet, the Saxon army was able to change a great siege in their favor against the Vikings by flinging several plugged beehives over the walls. The mad bees, the, the, it would break, and the mad bees would cause the distraction they needed in order to actually scale the walls, opening the fort's front uh, gate for the main forces to flood in, and removing a great Viking threat in Biamfliot, one of the major cities of England at the time. Hmm. Have at it. So wow. the Confeder- Confederados, the birth of the Great Khan, and the Saxons uh, against, and the bees versus the Vikings. Are you re- ready to weigh in, Cammy? I'm still kind of thinking. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't I, know. I, I think the I, honestly, I think the first one just doesn't sound like something that would happen because what. When the Civil War ended, like the South didn't have any money to move or anything like that, so I don't know how they would have yeah. kind of done that's that. It's a, a good mm. guess, yeah. Good reasoning. 
I, w- I do say that Confederados would be a badass like band name though. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. The, the term Confederacy, like we talked about in William Tell, like they were the Swiss Confederation. Confederation does sound cool, but it's like you can't just can't utilize that word anymore. You know. <laughs> Thanks, Robert E. Lee and Jeff or Davis, you jerks, ruining a perfectly good word. And I know that there are kind of mythical <clears throat> stories about like Genghis Khan's birth and childhood. I. I I haven't heard specifically about the blood clot, but that sounds that sounds good. So I'm kind of <laughs> I'm kind of torn between the 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 Saxon bee flinging and the uh, Confederados. Um, but like Cami, I think I'm 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 leaning towards Confederados. Final answer. Yeah, final answer. Cami. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. Like I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. The the lie <laughs> is the Saxons and the bees versus Damn the it. Vikings. <laughs> um now, okay, so it's it's a lie in that I, I made it up um based off of I and can't I'm surprised Cam didn't get this. I used uh, Bernard Cornwell's um Saxon series books as a springboard because that's something that actually happened in the books. But there there's no there's no like primary source that suggests that this happened. So I could as well just be BSing and this did happen and all three are true. <laughs> um, so, but, but there's no, there's no hardcore evidence now in for, so um, I'm reading or listening to the audiobook uh, Genghis Khan by Francis McLinn. Um, it's a really, really nice book that I've been reading about uh, sort of the, the, it's, it's a very detailed, it's like 24 hours long. I was really surprised, but, um, and there is this really cool primary source called the secret uh, history of the Mongols. And it's it was like um, it's very biased, of course, but is there it's a really cool historical account. And, and his mother did go on record saying that. And there was a lot of omen around this. And it's it's really crazy. There, the, you know, the uh, the Tengrenism is it, the, the it's very shamanistic, very symbolically fueled. And so there's a whole bunch having to do with children being born. So it is reported uh, in a primary document from the time that that that's how he was born, holding a, a bloody blood clot size of a knuckle and the confederados are a totally real thing i actually um when we decided that we were going to do another two truths uh, google was like hey you should read this because you like this stuff and it's it was um a, an article from the washington post uh, in june um and this is a real deal thing and, and one reason why it came up is because of the protests that are going around across the country very rightfully ha- have inspired uh there's this there's the festival the confederado festival and there there's a lot of debate in brazil about shutting this down um Mm. for obvious reasons and of course it's it's tough i mean it's one of those things where the the people who want to keep it say i don't think of it as slavery i think of it as just like my grandpa or great grandpa um, you know that kind of thing it's 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 similar we're from south carolina we know this debate very well um no matter how silly it seems but it's just really it's wild to think of it happening in a different country uh, yeah. but no yeah. this is this is true so yeah by by uh, t- 10 to twenty thousand um southerners uh fled many returned um, later, too, once uh, Reconstruction shut down and Jim Crow was up in style, mm-hmm. when, once the South became terrible again, um, <laughs> every a lot of people did come back. But the, uh, a lot of them went to Sao Paulo, and I guess it was just an easy way to like kind of you know go from 
port city to port city um, from Charleston and things like that. So, um, yeah, there's, there's still a really big debate over this in Brazil and and it's wild. But there's it's really cool. If you see the pictures, there's like this Brazilian cowboy in a Confederate or you know like a world a civil war style uniform so super weird super wild yeah and it keeps it keeps flaring up um when with the pressure from the united states so uh i thought that was a really cool wild way to go so yeah yeah well please uh please provide that link with the uh with the the episode i definitely have to read more about that there's there's way more in there that i talked about um like the history behind it there's a whole book written on it it's it's really wild because of you'd think i don't know it's it's crazy you know slavery ended in brazil i think it's 1885 and it's just it's cool it's really really cool i'll i'll put the link i think the link mentions the book too so definitely worth uh, reading on awesome good stuff brian cool all right two points for me and two points for peter we're just we're getting really good at this guys we need to spread our (laughs) votes around I know, I know, yeah. All right, Kimmy, if you don't fool both of us, then you're you're just Peter and I are in first, and you're in third, okay? Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So I am basing mine on uh, cryptids and specifically cryptid hoaxes. So all of these cryptids do exist, but they're the hoaxes behind them are not all true. So, we'll start with the Piltdown Man. It was 1912 when an amateur fossil enthusiast changed the course of evolutionary biology for the next 40-plus years. The village of Piltdown, Sussex, England, had produced the missing link. Charles Dawson had found a mandible with two intact molars and a partial skull fragment that seemed quite human. He also found primitive tools and the fossil fragments of non-primate animals. Scientists of the day surmised Dawson had stumbled upon a Pliocene site. Pliocene site. Dawson worked for two years in recovering artifacts and further skeletal remains of the hominin now referred to as Piltdown Man. Dawson died in 1916, but his discovery continued to fuel searches for other bone fragments that would match the important creature. No one found anything until the mid-1950s. The lead anthropologist from the British Museum had some answers. The jawbone of an orangutan and the skull and bone fragments of at least two humans were used to create the fraud. The bones were stained to look as if they were from the same level, level of sediment they were found in. Now that we know the species was a complete fabrication, the question remains, who is the forager? In August of 1983, a New York Times article accused none other than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And who would be a more perfect suspect than the brain behind the first master sleuth? The Times interviewed a man named John Hathaway Winslow, who had published his theory in Science 83 magazine. According to Winslow, Doyle had the propensity for elaborate hoaxes and the tools, knowledge and skill to pull them off. He would also visit the site, it being only about eight miles from his home. Winslow even pointed to the work The Lost World as more proof. Many modern people say the book was based on the Piltdown discovery, but the book was written before Piltdown Man was unearthed. One of the most compelling arguments is that the creature was found with something that looked like a cricket bat, one of Doyle's favorite sports. 
Today, scientists have an easier explanation, pinning the entire hoax on Dawson, but there is some magic in believing it was Doyle all along. Hmm. Okay. So now we're going to go to the Montauk monster. On July 12th, 2008, a new cryptid appeared in the shores of Montauk, New York. This grotesque beast was immortalized in a photo by a beachgoer named Jenna Hewitt and became an instant internet sensation. It had no fur to speak of. The jaw, look, the jaw looked almost beak-like, but contained a row of sharp teeth, and the paws were almost human-looking. Montauk is only a few miles from the infamous Plum Island, where strange animal experience, experiments are conducted up to this day. Richard Nixon stopped the biological weapons testing at the end of his presidency, but it is still so well guarded that Homeland Security is in control of securing the borders of the land. It was even the target of a failed terror attack by Al-Qaeda in the same year the monster was discovered. Many cryptozoologists and journalists swarmed to the area in the next few months to catch a glimpse of the creature, but no one could find the body. Based on the photos alone, some surmise that the, that the Montauk find was simply a raccoon or dog or even a turtle missing its shell. But none of those or any other explanations seem to encompass the totality, totalitary of weirdness that was the shining beast. None other than William Wise of Stony Brook's University's Living Marine Resources Institute claimed it was most likely latex. You see, Jesse Ventura, yes, the governor, was filming an episode of his yet-to-air series, Conspiracy Theory, from the nearby Plum Island, and the world had a culprit. Ventura, who was furious with Homeland Security for not allowing him to film on the island, was accused of deciding to make his own story. His prop team was no doubt capable of providing a hybrid cat, dog, raccoon, bird creature because they were able to provide very lifelike beasts only one season later in the Skinwalker and Manimal episodes. Himself and his crew were even seen in Montauk just before the animal was discovered. If this was a fabrication, the plan was a huge success. Either way, Ventura had the story he needed trying, <clears throat> tying Plum Island experiments to the mysterious cryptid. Of course, the show's producers and Ventura deny any involvement to this day. That's a good one. Yeah, okay. Okay, I and now we go to Bigfoot. Over 50 years ago, the world was in awe of a bit of film lasting barely a minute. Two former rodeo riders turned cryptid explorers, Bob Giblin and Roger Patterson, had not only found Bigfoot, but had the photographic evidence to prove it. The classic still of the creature turned to look at the camera is arguably the first image which comes to mind when picturing the creature. But this evidence <clears throat> bears striking resemblance to another popular cryptid film from the era, in 1997, tabloids ran a story connecting the famous Hollywood special effects guru, John Chambers, who won an Academy Award for Best Makeup on the Planet of the Apes, to the famous grainy footage. The papers claimed that Chambers had, it, had admitted to someone he worked with on another film. They had made the suit and even helped film the event. Until his death, Chambers claimed that he had never met the two amateur fil filmmakers and didn't know they existed prior to the Bigfoot sighting. He said that while there was while he was very good at his job, he would have never been able to pull off pull that off in the 1970s. One piece of evidence may completely exonerate Chambers, the very large footprints found at the scene. 
They bear striking resemblance to footprints found in the same era in the 19th area in the 1970s and a footprint found in China in 1997. Until there is a body, we may never know if it was a human in a suit that day or if it was some other filthy ape. <laughs> One of the mother ones. Must have been a Yeti. Oh, man. I'm going number one. I'm just slamming it down right now. Yeah. You know, there. I'm wondering if, if Cammy's placed some bait here for us because <laughs> uh, Conan Doyle has uh, appeared on this program before. Wasn't he on the, the fairy episode as well? The photographing fairies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was. Okay. So is it likely that he dabbled in fairy and Piltdown Man? I don't know. The Jesse Ventura story is great and sounds exactly like something he would do. <laughs> um, and the Bigfoot story sounds really good, too. Ah, I think she's going to trick us here, but I'm going with the uh, Piltdown Man as well. So, Final answer, Piltdown, Piltdown Man. Man. Okay. Uh, the Piltdown Man is true. Oh. Uh, <laughs> is it Bigfoot, then? No, the Bigfoot is true, too. Um. The Montauk Monster, while Jesse Ventura was filming his conspiracy theory show in the area, he was never accused of making the monster. But uh, he could have. He definitely <laughs> could have. I'm accusing him right now. Right. <laughs> you just made yourself false then. I've never, so, seen, I've never seen that creature either. We, we need to provide a photo for Oh, it's, yeah. it's really gross. It's like a bloated... I don't... I, it may be raccoon. The hand, I mean, it looks like hands that mm. the creature has. Uh, let me go over my sources, though. So the New York Times yeah. article, article uh, Arthur Doyle is Piltdown Suspect. And then the Royal Society Open Science, new genetic and morphological evidence suggests a single hoaxer created Piltdown Man. And that's by Isabel D. Groot. Uh, Wikipedia, Montauk Monster, and, conspir- and the Conspiracy Theory Wikipedia uh Hartford Current, Jesse Ventura Investigates Plum Island, Recalls Linda McMone as a Boss by Richard Richard Caitlin. And Film Introducing Bigfoot to the World, Still mis- still Mysterious, 50 Years Later by John Rosslyn. And that was Oregon Public Broadcasting. And then Cryptozoology, A to Z, with Lauren Coleman and Jerome Clark. Dang. Those are really good. Everybody. We, we, yeah. We, we're all great, <laughs> great foolers. That was fun. I can't remember who won last time. I did. Yeah. You, totally you won did. one. Okay. All right. Yeah. You won one. Yeah. We but all it wasn't, tied, though. It was well, that's right. Because it was like, I can't remember how we determined it, but. Oh, because it, you didn't. Who neither one of you guessed mine. Yeah. Right. And yeah, I got no one, one right, I think. No one guessed one right on anyone's. So we all kind of lost one? in that regard. Yeah. yeah. And we all doubled down too. We're all like, it's definitely, we all jumped in on the same one, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And so uh, to our listeners, did we, we, did we fool you as well? Let us know. Yes. Yeah. I meant to like give it a little like pause notice. So hopefully I'll put it in the post, but yeah, yeah. Take it. I know a few people did it last time. So yeah, please do like, as soon as the stories are done, pause it and guess it's, it's a lot of fun. We want to know what, what you guys got. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, Peter, thanks for coming back on Apodicus Magnus. Cammy, you, you have to be here now, so no choice. 
Um, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, this was uh, Apodicus Magnus, our second edition of Two Truths and a Lie with Mystery. We'll be back on Wednesday with a normal episode, and then Peter will be back in a couple weeks for another fun one. We'll probably do another Two Truths and a Lie in a couple months. We, we I just remembered while we were recording this that we it was one of the last episodes we got to record live, I think before oh yeah the, it was yeah. started ending but we we but it was it came out april 1st so we were already in lockdown you know mode but it was it was a live audio so it's kind of fun so i'm glad we got to actually see each other because we got to see each other we were next to each other the first time we did it so um it's cool to be able to see all that so anyways all right well peter cammy thanks so much for being here everyone thanks for listening um we will see you next time oh, oh godzilla scream